On the 20th of August 1940, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave a speech in the House of Commons in which he said, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. The few that Churchill referred to in that quote were the elite group of ace fighter pilots who fought in what became known as the Battle of Britain. Historians regard this as the first major battle in history to be fought in the sky. It lasted for over three months and was a crucial early turning point in the Second World War. Germany had quickly conquered France and were intending to invade the UK next. But to do this, they obviously needed to control the English Channel. So the German, the German Air Force therefore launched a ferocious bombing campaign. Churchill himself visited the RAF command bunker and was deeply moved as he saw for himself that the whole direction of the war for millions in the UK lay in the hands of these few brave fighter pilots. Apparently Churchill spontaneously had turned to his major general and said, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few. But when this phrase made it into the draft of his speech, the major had later asked Churchill, what about Jesus and his disciples? So apparently instead of saying in the history of mankind, Churchill changed the final wording to never in the field of human conflict. During the war, Churchill had this amazing gift, didn't he? Finding eloquent phrases that seemed to inspire the whole country. So much, so many, so few. But the major was also right that all of these same contrasts are even more true of Jesus. In this series, we've been thinking about the amazing Hebrew word hesed, which describes for us the astonishing kindness of God. And today we reach a kind of pinnacle in the journey that we've been on as we see that this astonishing kindness of God comes to us ultimately in human skin. In the end, kindness is not an abstract idea, but a person. The great theme of Hesed that we've been tracing through the Bible is summed up by Jesus coming to us clothed in kindness. Never in the history of mankind has one so glorious, so powerful, so great, been so brave and so generous or suffered such humiliation. And of course, in Jesus's case, all of this tremendous contrast is infinitely magnified because Jesus freely did what he did for us who did not deserve any of it at all. To try and see this, I want, us to, to, I want to take us to the passage that we read in Matthew chapter 17, because I think it reveals something of the paradox between the glorious identity of Jesus and his agonizing mission. We see here in this passage both how high Jesus is and 
how low he went. But as we'll see, this passage also amazingly connects us with Moses, which is where we started our journey in Exodus 34. So come with me for a few moments as we look at this mysterious incident, which has become known as the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus here takes three of his closest friends, Peter, James and John, up a high mountain. There are two or three different possibilities, but we don't know for sure which mountain this was. The point is that Jesus takes them far away for a time from ordinary life in order to show them something incredibly important. And while they're there, three a number of things happen. First of all, the appearance and clothing of Jesus dramatically changes. In verse 2, Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. And even the clothes Jesus was wearing became radiant. Then secondly, two great heroes of the distant past also appear, Moses and Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus. The fact that they're even there shows that there is a glorious future beyond death for God's people. But the point being made here is that these two men are supporting actors in the great drama that centers on Jesus. They are for sure important figures in the Old Testament, but Jesus is in a different category, a unique category all of his own. Jesus is the fulfillment and the climax of all the promises, all the history, all the hopes and desires. Moses and Elijah are here to point to Jesus and to confirm his supreme status as the promised Messiah, the Christ. Now, at first, Peter is like, this is great, Lord. And he offers to make some shelters for them all. But while he's still talking, Peter is cut off in mid-flow as a bright cloud descends and envelops them all. This is quite strange when you think about it, because normally clouds make everything dark and gloomy. But this cloud seems to have had a glow all of its own and instead bathes them in glorious light. Whenever we see a cloud like this in the Old Testament, generally it symbolises the glory and presence of God himself. And so it is because from within the cloud then they hear God the Father speaking about Jesus. At the end of verse 5, God the Father says, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples fall on their faces in terror. But rather than flaunting his power, Jesus then gently touches them. He helps them up and calms their fears. And when they open their eyes and look now, The radiant cloud has gone. Moses and Elijah have gone. And it's just the four of them on this mountain again. On the way down, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what they've seen until after his resurrection. And so it seems that this experience was not so much for Jesus as for these three disciples. 
The paradox here is what one writer calls the promise of glory and the shadow of death. Jesus is very great. But if he's going to be resurrected, he's obviously, first of all, going to have to die. So let, let me try and open up this scene for us by firstly considering the glorious identity of Jesus. We'll spend a little longer on that. And then we'll briefly contrast this truth with the sacrificial mission of Jesus. Very simply, we, we've said that there, there are three things here that point to the true identity of Jesus being revealed. And they are the appearance of Jesus changing, the significance of Moses and Elijah being there, and then finally them hearing the voice of God speaking to them directly. So let's take these three things in turn. First of all, the true glory of Jesus is momentarily glimpsed. If you lived in Israel in 30 AD or so, and you passed Jesus in the street, you probably wouldn't think he was anything out of the ordinary. He will have looked like a regular Jewish man. In fact, Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, talks about there being nothing extraordinary about the promised Messiah at all. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But just for a moment on this mountain, it is as if God draws the curtains back and these three men see something of the true glory of Christ. When Moses spoke with God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, he didn't realise that when he came down the mountain, his own face was glowing. The people were afraid to come near him. But his radiance was a sort of reflected brightness after being in the glorious presence of God. However, on this mountain, Jesus isn't glowing here because he's seen something else. This is not what we might call a reflection of glory. This is his own inherent divine glory coming from within himself that they seem to see. Jesus looked like any other man because his true identity had been veiled. But in this moment, these men see a glimpse of the true glory that Jesus possesses. Secondly, I want to I want to say this, the longing prayer of Moses is finally answered here. Now, we haven't really got time to get into Elijah 2, but in terms of the journey that we've been on over the last few weeks in this series, I want to remind you that Moses has been on a mountain before in Exodus 34. And you remember there that Moses cried out to God in a moment of desperate crisis, national failure. Oh God, show me your glory. And God had answered his prayer then by revealing to Moses his character. 
Using words, God describes himself as overflowing with hesed. Moses learned the surprising and encouraging truth that astonishing kindness is at the very heart of God's character. But now, many years later, on this different mountain, his original request to see God's glory is finally and supremely answered. Moses heard it first then in words, but now he sees the glory of God in a living person, Jesus. So at this point, I feel like I wanna give you a kind of checklist of all the characteristics we learned from God, about God, in Exodus 34 and verses six and seven, so that we can then go down the list, comparing them to Jesus and taking them off. So is Jesus compassionate? Earlier on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9, Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep, harassed and helpless and without a shepherd. Crowds can often look busily occupied and carefree as they go about their business. But it seems that Jesus sees behind the false front into the loneliness and emptiness and helplessness that can often be lurking in individual human hearts. Jesus therefore enters this world of suffering and pain with tender sympathy. Is he gracious? John could say in his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't treat people as they deserved to be treated. Jesus didn't shut them out, but rather opened the door of his heart to sinners and outsiders. One way that we see this in the gospels is, I, I love the extravagance that comes across in the stories that Jesus tells. A father whose lost son comes home and the father doesn't just welcome him, but he sprints down the road with a new coat and new shoes and a new ring and he throws a lavish party. On one occasion, Jesus told a story about a great king who calls one of his courtiers in, who owes him millions of pounds and the man falls on his knees and the king cancels the whole enormous debt and lets him go free. What about the story of the Good Samaritan who doesn't just show care, but he loads the wounded victim onto his own donkey, walks to the hotel, and then promises to come back later and settle the final bill in full. It seems when you read the gospels that the thought world of Jesus is one of lavish, over-the-top grace that goes above and beyond duty and into the realms of extravagance. Is he patient? Jesus could and did get angry when it was appropriate to do so, but we find that he was certainly slow to anger. We only have to think, don't we, of his patience with these very disciples 
who were often so slow to understand who he really was and why he'd come. Is Jesus overflowing in love and faithfulness? I think by any measure, Jesus's whole life was poured out in determined, courageous, extravagant kindness. He entered our human race and was obedient to his father in everything. He even endured the cross in order to save those he loves. There's an, inter- there's an interesting passage in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus where Paul prays that the Christians there would have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. The love of Jesus is an unmeasurable ocean. Is he forgiving? We find Jesus in the Gospels forgiving thieving tax collectors. He forgave his own disciples. He forgave women caught in adultery who'd been thrown out. He even forgave his enemies who nailed him to a cross. My point here is that if we take God's own words about himself in Exodus 34 and then compare them to the life of Jesus, it's like playing Hesed Bingo. We find that Jesus is the towering pinnacle of all of it. He's the Lord. This means that when God originally spoke to Moses, what God was actually doing was preaching the good news of Jesus to him. On that mountain, God the Father was telling Moses all about God the Son. And now on this mountain, Moses finally gets to see the glory of the Son. This means that Jesus himself is joyful and everlasting Hesed. He is the astonishing kindness of God coming to us in human flesh. And thirdly, here the eternal delight of the Father is clearly heard. It should be no surprise then to hear God the Father speak again here and to express his joy and pride in the Son who he has loved for all eternity. As it was for Moses in Exodus 34, it isn't so much what they see, but what they hear that is so amazing. And what this means is that I can say to you, now, don't take my word for it. Here is God himself saying, look at my son. Isn't he incredible? God the Father here is beside himself with joy because his beloved son is the epitome of glorious, 
wonderful, astonishing kindness. We've seen something of the, the, the glorious identity of Jesus being revealed here in this passage. Let's think for a moment about the sacrificial mission of Jesus then. One of the reasons that this transfiguration incident is so important to these men is that just before this, Jesus has told them that he will suffer and die. You can read about that in the previous chapter, Matthew 16, verse 21. And they're horrified, understandably. How could one so glorious suffer and die? Luke actually tells us in his account of this transfiguration incident that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his coming death. And here in this passage in Matthew 17, on the way down the mountain, as they're talking about Elijah and John the Baptist, in verse 12 here, Jesus again tells them that his path will lead him towards suffering. This surely is one of the great, it is the greatest paradox that we could ever marvel at. That the glorious and compassionate Son of God should be humiliated and crucified like a criminal is, is utterly shocking. I've been struck this week with how the glory of this scene contrasts with the horror of the cross. Here on this mountain, the face and clothes of Jesus shine with radiant beauty. But at the cross, the soldiers strip him naked and play dice for his clothes and his face is contorted in anguish. Here, Jesus is flanked by two great heroes who point to his supremacy. At the cross, Jesus is crucified in shame between two criminals. In this scene, Peter is like, this is great, Lord. At the cross, he runs away crying because it's so awful. Here, God's presence is signified in a bright cloud. At the cross, Jesus is abandoned in thick darkness. Here, it is God who says, behold my son. At the cross, it's a Roman centurion who saw him die, who says, Surely he was the son of God. We might even say that here is a progressive tale of three mountains. In Exodus 34, we saw God reveal his glorious hazard to Moses on Mount Sinai. Here on this mountain, we're learning that Jesus himself is this glorious hazard. And then on the hill outside Jerusalem that was known as the skull. This hesed reaches its unbelievable pinnacle at the cross where Jesus later dies. Our definition of hesed has been one of extravagant kindness shown to those who don't deserve it. 
And this is exactly what we find in Jesus. To use the language of Exodus 34, at the cross, God by no means clears the guilty, but visits the sins of the fathers, in fact, the sins of all of us, on his only son. God displays his abounding, faithful hesed as Jesus bears the consequences of our sin in his own death upon the cross. One writer says that Jesus gave himself so that we might be conquered by the kindness of God. I do love that. In Jesus, we have a king who conquers not by sword or threat, but by laying down his life to save his subjects. Can I ask you, have you been conquered by the kindness of God shown to you in Jesus? In this passage in Matthew, it's actually God himself calling to you to look at Jesus. Here is my son. And to listen to Jesus and ultimately to trust in his astonishing kindness. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that there was a time when we were all spiritually dead in our sins, but that in his great love and mercy, God made us alive with Christ. And Paul then goes on to say that God did this so that one day, one day in the coming ages, think about this, in the coming ages, God might show off the incomparable riches of his grace expressed how? In his kindness to us, in Christ Jesus. It turns out then that Churchill's major general was spot on about Jesus. Never in human history was so much owed by so many to so kind a saviour.